Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe. We want to rightly divide the Word of God, comparing Scripture to Scripture, so we can know what we believe by God's Word, rather than relying on what we, trying to back up what we already believe, we want to know what God's Word says. Now, if you have questions, you could put a word, the word question or a cue in front of your comment section, or your comments on the comment section, and add any references, we'll be able to respond to them. Uh, this is a supplement to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of Tucson. So if you're in our studies, you can take some notes and questions that you may have, and you can ask questions about the teachings or hot topic. Uh, also, we'll take questions, anything on the Christian topic, apologetics, uh, the nuances of the Christian life. Our first question uh, today is from Kimberly, and she wrote at the end of our last uh, Q&A, so uh, people with addictions won't be considered, wouldn't be habitual sin, would it? Now, she asked this question because we were talking about what it means to be a genuine Christian. And one of the things that we had brought up, there were several areas that reveal that we're a genuine Christian. One of them is that we want to do what God wants us to do. God's given us good works to walk in. And so if we really love him, we're going to want to do what he wants us to do. If someone says, I love God, but I don't want to do what he wants me to do, that's problematic. And although we don't want to judge people, we we will say, hey, you need to really check your heart and see whether or not you genuinely made a commitment to Christ. Another one was the practicing of sin. And there are a couple of passages that tell us that we who are genuine Christians, uh, that, that Christians who practice sin are not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And I use the example of Ravi Zachariah, um, the apologist um, and church uh, Christian leader who was used by God and was very effective as an apologist. But after he died, we found out that he was living a double life. And as I understand it, he would take women with him on his trips to give him massages. And he groomed them and would take advantage of them sexually while he was out on the road. And this was a lifestyle. It was something that was pre-planned and prepared for. It wasn't like someone that wants to walk with God and then finds themselves tempted, but it's someone that actually set things up for himself to continue to walk in it. And that's practicing sin. Are you planning things? Are you uh, your trying to to point out um, or, or trying to set things up so that you yourself don't find um, you yourself are are planning exactly what's going to happen now so then Kimberly asked the question so people with addictions won't be considered a habitual sin would it now uh, that question's a little bit difficult to answer because what would this habitual sin be you have addictions and you have behavioral issues. Behavioral issues are hard to change, and you have strongholds that we need to cast down every stronghold against God, and you've got addictions. And sometimes people have to be brought to the very bottom to be able to deal with addictions. Uh, They have to really go through struggles or hardships to get to the point where they're not facing or or, or where they can really handle those addictions. And some Christians go into this 12-step program, um, which provides for them someone to be able to talk to, some accountability, and have been able to, to break it. Some people, when they get to that breaking point, 
for behavioral issues. Maybe their wife's going to leave them or they realize um, a lot of times with addiction to heroin, they'll realize I'm going to die and the kind of person I'm becoming isn't the kind of person that I want to be. And we are, the Bible says sin is deceptive, Satan is a deceiver, and we can be self-deceived. And this is how a Christian gets into behavioral issues and into addictions. They have deceived themselves. They are being deceived by Satan is taking advantage of them. Now, the Bible becomes clear that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond our strength, but provide a way of escape. But that way of escape, when there's behavioral issues or addictions that are there, is something you've got to be looking for again and again, that with the temptation comes a way of escape. There has to be a repentance, a turning away from it, a desire to get rid of it. You can't continue on as if everything's okay. You've got to repent from it, be convicted of it. Um, ask God to help you. It doesn't mean you won't struggle with it. It doesn't mean you might not do the addiction again. But what it does mean is that you're continually coming back to him to find the help that you need to have. Jesus said, if you're weary and heavy laden, come unto me. And for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So as a Christian, you come to Christ and you live for him. If someone's living for an addiction, that addiction is idolatry. They're living for that thing rather than living for Christ. So the best thing to do is to begin to live for him. I, I call this living for the positives instead of just fighting the negatives. Yes, you have to fight the negatives, but you're living for the positive. You're walking in the spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. So you make things right between you and God. You ask him to forgive you. You confess your sin and your failure, your propensity to do whatever sin it is that, that you're habitually doing, and you call out to him, you, and, and then you walk in the spirit, you delight in the Lord, you get serious about making sure that you're in church, making sure that you've got friends who are Christians, making sure that things are right between you and the people around you, and you allow God to be able to be the one to work in you to set you free. So if addiction doesn't give you a pass, as a Christian, you've got to be battling it and fighting against it. We realize that an addiction is a stronghold, but you can't say, well, just because someone is addicted, they're, um, that doesn't mean they're not a Christian. If a Christian is addicted or if a person's addicted and they're not battling against it, they're not repenting from it, they're not trying to make things right with God, then I would say, uh, Kimberly, the same thing applies. Your question, so people with addictions won't be considered a habitual sin. Well, yeah, it would be considered a habitual sin. But if they're battling it, they're seeking forgiveness, they're making things right, God knows our weaknesses. He knows that we're made out of dust, the Bible says. And so God knows that we're in the midst of the battle. So you want to take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. You want to make sure you're doing all the things that you need to be doing that you're having a quiet time, that you're reading the word, taking it into your life daily, that you are in church because you're hearing from God's word, that you are serving. And doesn't mean that you can't be honest about the addiction that you're having. You don't have to hide it. If you have to hide it in order to serve, then, then don't serve. But if someone comes to us and tells us that they're struggling with a certain addiction, there may be places we won't let them serve, but there are places we'll let them serve because we want them to have that interaction and that fellowship. Um, also, 
got to make sure that you're not planning things to sin. So, um, you, you just got to repent from that as well, from trying to set things up to be able to sin. So, an addiction does not give you a pass. It is practicing sin and needs to be struggled and fought against. And it's like any other difficulty that we face. We have to make sure that we are battling against it, giving the opportunity for God to be able to rescue us and save us out of it. All right. And what, whatever you got to do to be able to do that, if it is, if it's some kind of a 12 step program, if it's an addiction program within a church that has similar things to a 12 step program, uh, then do whatever you've got to do to be able to get out from under that addiction. Um, addiction is an interesting thing. It seems like people have to get to the place where they want to let it go. But one of the things that can make you want to let it go is the spirit of God. And if you are sensitive to God's spirit, you find yourself in church, you find yourself seeking God, you find yourself praying and reading your Bible, then that's going to be, it's going to show you more when you really, that you need to really fight this thing. Whereas a lot of people who want to fight those things push these things away. All right. So um, thank you, Kimberly, for your question at the end of the study. Clarification on when we were talking about what it means to be a genuine Christian. Um, Psych man, good to see you here today. Um, let's see. Uh, so he has, you have a question, Psych man? Um, in, he kind of had a question before too. Let me look at that in a moment. Um, question, in John 6, Jesus uh, chases away folk telling them they have to drink his blood in Matthew 13 and says he spoke in parables so they would not understand. Then we get John 2, 24 and 25. What's going on here? Well, let's take a look at John 2. Um, what was it? John 2, 24 and 25. So let's just go there. John 2, 24 and 25. Um, right. So let's just go ahead and put this up on the screen for you here. Um, so it says in John 2, 24 and 25, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and he had no need that anyone should testify of him, but he knew what man was. Now before this, and let's go back to 23. Now when Jesus was at Jerusalem at the Passover during the first, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself to them. So this was not a genuine belief. We could call it a demonic belief. They believed in the signs, but they weren't ready to really genuinely commit their lives to Christ and to live and to follow after him. Now going back to your two questions, Psych Man, which is good questions by the way. Um, so a lot of people are following Jesus. They're following him because he, because he does miracles. They're following him because he feeds the 5,000. They want to be fed again. And so Jesus says something very hard to them, especially in the Jewish mindset. Because remember, in the Jewish mindset, it was against the law to eat anything with blood in it. You had to drain the animals. In order for something to be kosher, you had to drain the blood out of the animals, not to mention the idea of cannibalism. And so when Jesus said, you must drink my blood, he's telling them to do something that's not kosher. And they're like, this is a hard saying. Now, um, uh, John 6, I don't have the exact, let me just see if I can go to John 6 here and find this particular passage here. 
um, the feeding of the 5,000. See, they're, they're following him because he's feeding them. They want to come back for the food. At one point, Jesus will say to them, um, uh, you're just looking for the food. Uh, Jesus walks on the water. Let's see. Bread from heaven. On the following day, people came in. Um, yeah. Let me see if this is it here. So this is John 6. And it says, um, Jesus answering, the groups are coming after looking for food now. Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves of bread and were filled. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give, because the Father has sent him. And they said to him, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom sent him. So that's just the gospel, right? You're trusting in him. You're believing on him. Um, and then he says, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. Um, for the bread is, uh, is of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives it to the world. Let me see if I can get to this um, section where he talks about uh, the blood. I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. Believes me shall never thirst. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, so I'm just having trouble finding exactly... So he's claiming at this point to be the bread of life. I'm, I'm having this trouble finding that exact passage where he talks about, but okay, um, where, where he talks about drinking his blood. Um, many people will connect this to communion, but I don't believe it's communion. I believe that what he's saying to them is that we have to partake of Christ. We have to bring him into our lives. But he said it in such a way to cause them a challenge that if they really wanted to know, they would seek. And Jesus wants seekers. The Bible says God's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him in Hebrews chapter 1. And so they were going to have to go past this. And when all of the people left, then he turns to his disciples. All right, so... Um, all right, so we've got many, let me, I'm, I'm all the way down at verse 60 here. Let me put this up on the screen. We'll see if, we, if it's there. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said, does this offend you? What then if the Son of Man ascends where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. Flesh profits nothing, but the word speaks to you, our spirit and our life. But they are some of you who do not believe. So once again, we come back to the whole believing idea. And let me just, sorry to do this while you're watching. Let me just go back and see if I can find where he talks about um, drinking his blood here. Yeah, I spent too much time on this trying to find it. Um, so just coming back to your, coming back to your question. So... Jesus is saying something that's particularly hard to be able to handle. And the Word of God is full of things like this. We've really got to dive in. We've got to be diligent to find out what the truth is. Now, when he says in Matthew 13 that he speaks parables so that they don't understand, there was a certain time he spoke plainly to everyone. Then the scribes and Pharisees rejected him, rejected him, rejected him, went to the place where they, I believe they went too far. And then he began to speak in parables to them so that only those who would dive into the parables. He said, I speak to them in parables so seeing they don't see and hearing they don't hear. We often think of parables as being clarity. And they are, but also they're so that people have to dive in. 
and genuine believers are going to dive in. So I think that's what's happening here. Psych man, um, that Jesus is giving them some things that are hard to say. He's thinning out the ranks, wanting to know who really is diligent and who really wants to serve him and who really wants to follow him. And um, if Jesus brings some hard things in our lives to, to um, thin out the ranks, are we going to be those who stay? Are we going to be those who move on? But thank you very much for your question. Good to see you. Good to have you here. Um, we have a question from Jari. Jari says, um, question, why is each person's discernment different? I don't feel comfortable with some of my friends, like, but he feels comfortable with him and doesn't feel comfortable with someone else, etc. Okay, so this is a follow-up to our to a question that we had. Um, maybe it was even out of a study where I talked about the discernment that my wife had. We were talking about being genuine, being a genuine Christian. And uh, Simon the sorcerer wanted to buy the power to be able to lay hands on people because he didn't want to genuinely follow him. And I talked about how my late wife had the gift of discernment. And there was one particular guy at the church who was always really sappy. He was always, he talked in a really empathetic way. And he would, I hope you're staying close to Jesus. He would say things like that. And uh, it, it bothered me. I mean, I, I like... I like a much more genuine approach to things, and I felt like he wasn't being genuine. So Lisa said at one point to me, she was talking to him, and then afterwards we were driving home, and she said, there's something up with that guy. I don't know what it is, but there's something up with him. And I said, you can't judge people just because they talk a certain way. And uh, she said, I'm telling you, something's up. Sure enough, there was. He had a secret life going on. We had to get him out of all ministries because of the things that were happening. He left there and went to another church to try to do the same thing at the other church. We had to call the other church and tell him what we what we had found out about him because he just left us and went to go try to do something somewhere else. And um, so now then the question becomes, well, what is the gift of discernment? And what if I don't feel comfortable with someone? Well, the gift of discernment is different than just not feeling comfortable with someone. It's, it's something that God gives you that there's a problem with the individual. Now, you have to understand, I might be wrong about this discernment. If I Even if I have the gift of discernment and God's used me to, to, to discern, I want to be careful that I'm not judging people. So if I have a gift of discernment, I'm looking now a little bit closer to see if there's more that I can learn. That if it backs up my gift of discernment or if my gift of discernment was wrong. But because we can be wrong when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit, you can have, you could, you could think you heard a word of knowledge when you didn't. You could think you're prophesying for God, but you're not. You can... I think you have the gift of discernment, but you don't have the gift of discernment, or you're, or you're, you're not discerning that properly. And that's why we always want to be humble and say, I believe the Lord's telling me to tell you. I believe that God told me something about you. And the gift of knowledge is pretty easy to be able to tell. You, you, you know, God gives you gift of knowledge, and you say, you just let him know what you believe that God is really giving you on that gift of knowledge. So, um, yeah, it's not about just feeling comfortable or not. It's about really having the gift of discernment. And you want to make sure that when you have spiritual gifts like this, they don't lead to pride. And this happens easily where people feel like, well, I am able to tell if that person's really serving God or not. That certainly is not the reason for it. It's the reason for discernment is so that we don't end up believing false teachings or allowing someone to remain in a place that's scary 
um, because they look okay, but then, but, but they're really not because something's going on behind the scenes. And so you just want to make sure that you're not overly judging people. All right. Thank you, Jari. I appreciate that question. Um, we have a question from Barbara. Barbara says, um, a minute ago, I saw someone on YouTube say, since God was neither man, man or woman, he is non-binary. How would you respond uh, to this person? I would say that Jesus became a man and Jesus is God. And he presented himself as a man. In all of the Old Testament, we had God who is spirit. We have God who is presented as a he for whatever reasons. They can say it was a patriarchal society and he is presented as he. Um, I think that because God is spirit, and not flesh, but God became Jesus and he became a man. And then you've got passages in the Old Testament that say, if a man dresses like a woman or, or a woman dresses like a man, and that's not talking about the type of clothing, but feminine or, or masculine, then it is an abomination. So God made us male and female. And so we want to present what we've been made. That doesn't mean there's not a bell curve I don't know if it's a bell curve or a curve that some people are more, some girls are more masculine and some men are more feminine. We, we can recognize that, but that doesn't mean that God's made them a female or made them a male. It's just there are guys who are more masculine and guys that are less masculine, girls that are more um, masculine and less masculine, same thing, more feminine or less feminine, same kind of a thing. Um, but no, Jesus became a man. So, um, God the Father doesn't say God the God they or whatever they want to try to say. So God presents himself as, as a father, as a he in the Bible. And for whatever reasons, God has chosen to do that. So I would say you can't say that God is non-binary. Um, Jesus became a man. So I would, um, I would push back on that, Barbara. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate your question. Uh, Jari says, follow-up, part two. Um, I want to go back and take a look at um, Psychman's first uh, statement there to see if that was a question. Part two, follow-up. Aren't we all supposed to have the same level of discernment since we all have the same spirit? No, absolutely not, Jari. We receive different gifts of the spirit. So one receives the gifts of 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 discernment. Another receives the gift of, of tongues. Another receives the gift of teaching. Another one receives the gift of organization. Another one received the gifts of helps because we all have different positions within the body. We have the same spirit, but we receive different gifts from the spirit. And even those who don't believe the sign gifts are for today will often believe that the gift of helps, the gift of organization, the gift of teaching, the gift of evangelism, that these are still active today. And we do not have the same gift because um, the, the Holy Spirit gives the gifts as he wills, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He's the one that gives it. And then also at the end of verse 12, let's just go here. 1 Corinthians 12, I want to go to the very end of the passage here. And it says, um, yeah, here we go. So let me put this on the screen for you, Jari. Um, so this is the end of 1 Corinthians 12, and it says, um, I'm going to go with nine. Miracles, then gifts of healings, just going through these lists here. Administrations, varieties of tongues. Um, are all apostles? The answer, no. 
Obviously. Are all prophets? No, obviously. Are all teachers? No, obviously. Are all workers of miracles? No, obviously. Do all have the gifts of healings? Notice it's gifts of healings, which would indicate that the gift is given to a person for a person. Instead of just having the gift of healing, going able to pray for everybody that's out there. Do all speak with tongues? No, obviously. Which would take tongues being the manifestation, the manifestation of the Spirit off the table. One of them, but not the. Do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. So it's clear here that not everyone receives the same gifts. We have the same Spirit, but it's not just about the Spirit. It's about the gifting of the Spirit for the work uh, that you are doing. All right, Jari, thank you. Uh, I'm going to come back to this here in just a moment. I'm going to go back and look at... Um, um, Does he put the marriage separate of the lamb? Yeah, so Psychman just had a question here right out of, off, off the bat. He had another question as well. Did he put the marriage supper of the lamb before the millennium? But I already have a question. So, um, yes, I do put the marriage supper of the lamb before the millennium. What I'm not sure about, Jari, is so when you've got the marriage supper of the lamb, it's coupled between a couple of accounts. You have the woman who rides the beast. Who is, who is also the city of Babylon. So she's a false religion and she is a city that rules the world. And Revelation 17, 18 says, the woman who rides the beast is the city of Babylon. So you don't have an economic power there and a religious power. You have the city is the woman. Uh, then you have the marriage supper of the lamb and you've got the bride or the wife who is in white linen. And, sh and then the bride is also a, a, a city later on in the book of Revelation. An angel comes and says, I will show you the bride. And he shows a city which rules over the world, the city of Jerusalem. So you had the Babylon who ruled over the world. Now you've got the bride that rules over the world. And you have the bride who is also a woman. And she's a religious system as well. It's a representation of the real religious system. So my question is, because all believers are part of the, the bride. It's not just the church. And that becomes clear. We could talk about that again if you want to, but we talked about it a few, a few weeks ago. And that all believers are part of the bride. It never says the church is the bride. It says all believers are the bride. In the Old Testament, you've got Israel as the bride. In the New Testament, you've got a reference in uh, Ephesians 5 of speaking of Christ and the church as being the a, a, a wife and a husband. And again, this is an over this is a group of people who are now a religious system because idolatry is is spoken of as a, a person, the the woman who rides the beast. Now you've got a true system of belief, the church, who becomes the bride of Christ. And um it could happen, I believe, after the tribulation period, not one of the last things happening during the tribulation period. Because you have tribulation saints that are not there yet. Um, this is often used as a as an evidence for a pre-tribulation rapture, or at least pre-mid-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, that you have the marriage supper of the Lamb taking place, but there are still people on earth who would be part of that. Um, you want to push it all the way back to the millennium? You could. Um, I don't know 
that we don't always get things in chronological order in the Bible. Sometimes they're put next to each other for the emphasis. And seeing heaven weep, I mean, heaven rejoice over the woman who rides the beast and, and the city of Babylon, and then seeing the bride and the new Jerusalem coming up after that causes you to go, is this put here in this right place? So I don't necessarily put it in the, uh, at the end of the millennium period, but um, I'm also not completely opposed to that. All right. Thanks, uh, Psych Band. I appreciate that. So let me see. I, want, I don't want to go past by anybody's question. Take my time here. Uh, good to see you guys. Good to have you with me. Um, if I missed a question, I'm just going to go back to the top and just take my time and go through here. I've already answered a few of these. So there's Jari's question. Um, Barbara. Yeah, I saw somebody say that God is non-binary. Um, Jari's follow-up, we covered on discernment. All right. So, if you're here with us today, really glad to have you here. If, you, if it's your first time, uh, you have a question, you can put a Q or, a question, or the word question in front of your question, write it out and submit it. Reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense that you've got things spelled correctly, and you go ahead and submit it, and um, we'll get to it as we make our way um, through our Q&A. So we have a question from Sally Richardson. Sally, good to have you here with us from YouTube. I accompanied a lady I provide care, support for, to a doctor who was in pain, who was a pain specialist, and he asked her if she thought she had any addict, an addictive personality. Pastor Robert, is there such a thing? Um, so, we're trying to answer questions through the lens of Scripture, right? So, I am always trying to go back to the Bible and wonder, are there people that have more of an addictive personality than others? I would think of someone like Samson, who just continually seem to be doing certain things as having that addictive personality. I would think of someone who grows up in a family where it's interesting. A lot of times when people are growing up in a family that's exposed to alcohol, like the dad was an alcoholic, sometimes the kids won't touch alcohol. And not because they're Christian, because they don't want it. They've seen what it does. And then other times people follow in their parents' footsteps. And studies do show that there is more of a propensity to be an addict if your parent was an addict. Um, this may be the actual meaning of the Old Testament passages where it talks about passing down sin from generation to generation. Because later on in the Old Testament, it says, don't say our parents ate grapes and that set our teeth on edge. That he punishes the father for the father's sins and the son for the son's sins. That, that there's done, done generationally passed down, but there may be a propensity to do that. And so if you are more likely, if your dad was an addict and you feel you're more likely to be an addict, then you would want to stay, then you would want to stay away from it. All right. So I think, um, I think it's possible that that could be the case, that there are those that have an addictive personality. Um, I have, I have an, ex, an extreme personality. So whenever I get into something, I get into it all the way. 
you know, when I was um, when I was mountain biking. I'm into mountain biking all the way. When I played racquetball, I was into racquetball all the way. When I was working out, I was working out all the way. When I was, you know, whatever it is that I get into, I get into it all of the way. And I, I don't know if that's a, um, an addictive personality, um, although it could be depending on the kind of things that you're getting into. But I do believe you could have an addictive personality. And um, if you're prone to be to to be addicted to something, then I would say you got to be careful. All right. So we have a question from Violet Stag. Uh, good to see you here with us today. Um, you're welcome to uh, bring up a follow through, Sally, on that too. If I just didn't get your answer, your question answered um, totally or completely, or kind of went a different direction. So Violet Stag says, if Satan knows the word, then why does he continue to do what he does? knowing that he will lose. Is he blinded by his pride? Or is he like, I will take as many with me, um, and as many people with me? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. So we had this question a couple of weeks ago, or at least a variety of this question, Vila Stag. And I had kind of said in it, um, this may be one of those things that we don't know, but then after thinking things through, talking some things through with my wife, Satan comes down from heaven with great anger when he's thrown out of heaven. Remember, Michael and his angels fight against Satan and his angels, and he's cast, there's no more room found for them in heaven, so they don't have access anymore for the, uh, for, to accuse the brethren. And he comes down with great fury, knowing he has little time left. So, yeah, he is, he does know. And I think he wants to take as many people as he can with him because he's evil. He's, it's like the person who is going to kill himself but doesn't only kill himself, he kills his family. That's particularly evil. And I think that Satan is particularly evil and would like to take as many people as he can. Now, he's, he's, he has borders. Jesus said, Behold, I give you power to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will by any means hurt you. We're to put on our armor, and we're to stand and resist the devil, and he will flee from us. Jesus resisted the temptation and was able to stand. So there are boundaries that he has. Also, I think he was deceived. He said, I will exalt my throne and be like the Most High. Satan could never be like the Most High, but he thought that he could. So he was deceived. So he's not past being deceived, he can be deceived as well. And so that's why I say probably both. He's probably deceived about some things, uh, thinks he can prolong it longer than he does, thinks he's somehow in control, but he does know the word of God really well. He actually quotes it to Jesus when he's tempting Jesus. He actually quotes the word of God to Eve when Eve is, um, and it's a twisting of it, when Eve is tempted. And I think that Satan twists the scriptures for us as well. That's why rightly dividing the word of God is so extremely important. Um, it leads to heresies when you don't rightly divide the word of God. But good question. Um, Violet Stag, I, I do think that the enemy is looking to whom he may devour because he's particularly evil. All right. Um, fact check these hands says, I have recently heard uh, pastors say John 14, 21 means we must keep the Sabbath in order to be saved. Your thoughts? Yes, I do have thoughts every once in a while. Uh, let me go to John 14, 
21. I'm going to take a look at the context here really quick. Um, yeah, this is often used too for some other stuff. Let's go back to verse 19. I'm going to go ahead and put this on the screen for us. Um, a little while longer, a little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I, I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in the Father and my Father in me. Who He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas not scared said, Lord, um, how is it that you will manifest yourself? So the, the question is this. Here's what they do. They say, he that has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Okay? And if he loves me, uh, the Father's love will be in him. All right? So then they say, well, the commandments of Jesus, the commandments, uh, Ten Commandments say, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And so those are his commandments because he's God. And so we've got to keep those commandments. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about, um, let's see, uh, yeah, I was loved by my father. There's another passage where Jesus says, um, if you love me, you will keep my word. You'll keep his teaching. Uh, the same thing is done with baptism. Because Jesus said, go out and baptize. Then people will say, well, if you don't baptize, then you're not saved because you got to keep his word. So they use the same kind of an argument to make that statement. However, we know that we are no longer under the law. It says it plainly in the book of Galatians. We are not under the law. And it says in Colossians, don't let anyone judge you when it comes to Sabbaths and new moons and festivals, which are all Jewish things. Don't let anyone judge you. In Romans chapter 14, it says that one man esteems one day above the other, another man esteems all days alike, don't judge one another, but let each be totally convinced in their own mind. Meaning, fact check these hands that if you want to, you want to, you want to have one day, you want to have a, a, a Sunday as a Sabbath, and you want to give that to God, then do it under the Lord. But don't lay your trip on other people, man. That's what he's saying in Romans 14. That if somebody says, no, all days are alike. I serve God on every day, and I follow him every day. I don't have to have a day of the week. Then we don't have to do that. And it is clear in Romans and in Galatians and in Colossians that we are not under the Ten Commandments, which is why when someone comes to me and says to me, um, do you keep the Ten Commandments? Now, this usually is a Sabbatarian. They're part of the sealing ministry or they're part of the Worldwide Church of God or they're part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And they say, that's a question like they ask. I always say no. And hey, all, all, all of it's good. And I do find Christ fulfilling the Sabbath. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it, meaning he completed it. Moses opened the door on the law. Jesus shuts the door on the law. He fulfilled it. So he, we don't have a high priest today. Now it was in the law. They had a high priest and you had a sacrifice they had to give. We don't give sacrifices today. We don't have a high priest today because... Jesus became our high priest. He became our sacrifice. We don't keep Passover today because Jesus became our Passover lamb. We don't keep the Sabbath the way that the law did because Jesus has become our Sabbath, Hebrews chapter 4. 
he is our rest and we are to put our rest in him. I don't find my rest now in resting on Saturday. I find my rest in Christ. So he fulfilled the law. He completed it. Think of it that way. The fulfilling the law means to complete it. Not one jot and tittle of the law will pass away. It will all be completed. And he completed the law. And so this argument that Jesus commanded to be baptized, therefore baptism is salvation. If you're not baptized, you're not saved. Or Jesus commanded to, um, to, to watch the Sabbath, which is the opposite of what happened, right? Um, Jesus deliberately broke their rules about the Sabbath. And this is exactly what Sabbatarians do. They rewrite the Sabbath law. So they're not following like it is in the Old Testament. They've rewritten it to be going to church on Saturday when it never said that. It never said go to synagogue on Saturday. It just said to remember and keep it holy. So they've made it Saturday and that's what is the salvation issue when Jesus deliberately broke their own rules. He said, you teach the traditions of men as if they are the commandments of God. And that's exactly what Sabbatarians do today. They teach the commandments of men as if they are the command, the, the traditions of men as if they are the commandments of God. And then they tell me I'm breaking the law. Jesus literally told them the Sabbath day was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And if a, if a mule fell into um, a ditch, there were concessions that you could go out of the way and even break the Sabbath to be able to help someone. And so Jesus healed people on the Sabbath because they had a rule you couldn't heal. He never broke the Sabbath because he kept the law, but he broke their ideas of what the Sabbath is. And because we are no longer under the law, but and, and Galatians chapter 3 says that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And once we come to Christ, we no longer need the schoolmaster. We no longer need the law because we're in Christ now. And so we no longer keep it. So that argument is, um, is weak. It's a weak argument. It's, it's not a good argument. Um, so what, what is that argument? What is that argument saying? And if you go to John, let's see, it's, um, I think it's 1 John, 1 John 1. If you go to 1 John 1, well, let me just quote it to you. We'll go, we'll go that way. Um, it says, by this you know that you know him, that you keep his commandments. Later on, it says you keep his word in the same passage. And then it says, by this, we know that we know him. If you love him, you'll keep his commandments. And if you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar and the truth ain't in you. So the commandments of Christ, you want to know what the commandments of Christ are? Then go and look at his teachings. Listen to the kind of things that he said. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. When you pray, don't go on a street corner and pray to be, to be seen by people, but go into your room and pray privately. So those who see you in secret will reward you openly. That's following the things of Jesus. We are, we are following the teachings of Christ. Don't judge yourself lest you be judged. Take the plank out of your own eye before you try to get the speck out of a brother's eye. These are all teachings of Jesus and commandments of Jesus. The New Testament, the teachings of the apostles come from the Holy Spirit, which is recalling the things that Jesus taught. And so when we keep the things written in scripture, we're keeping the word of Christ because Jesus is called the word of God. So that doesn't mean he's the Bible. It means that he is showing us what God wants from us and how God wants us to live. So that is a complete misuse of that passage to try to justify their legalism. And legalism is dangerous and deadly 
and it often is is equated to fundamentalism. And by fundamentalism, I mean someone who is an extreme, not someone who believes in the fundamentals of the faith. We believe in the fundamentals of the faith, but we are not extreme in getting something, something that we was our little pet thing and then tell everybody, you got to do our pet thing in order to genuinely be saved. Okay. So again, um, fact check these hands. If you have a follow-up question either today or another day that you want more clarification on that, I would love to give it to you. But it certainly is a, um, a false teaching and a, and a way people try to justify a lot of different things um, that are just legalistic. That when we go to other parts of the Bible, we see clearly. Um, we see clearly that, like the Sabbath day, it, leave them alone, he says. You live your convictions before God. All right, so Psychman has another question here. How long do we have here? Well, we got a few minutes. So Psychman has another question. Um, Psychman says, why did God choose you and not Joe Sinner down the road, if, if uh, time permits? Um, yeah, great question, Psychman. So, God... Jesus died on the cross for all, right? The Bible clearly says that. Jesus died once for all. And this is why in Calvinism, limited atonement can't be defended. They'll even talk about it in them themselves, the difficulty. And there are some Calvinists who don't believe in limited atonement because it's hard to defend. Because it says that Jesus died for everybody. And if he died for everybody, that does, it doesn't mean there, were, there are those that he didn't die for. And so then there's grace that's given to us. There's the grace of the cross. There's the grace of the gospel through the scriptures. There's the grace of the preaching of the gospel. There's the grace of creation and that inner voice of Romans 1. So we can respond to any of those. Those are God drawing us to him. And if somebody rejects creation, Somebody says, I think it's evolution. I don't think it says anything. I don't think there's any design. I think we evolved into the design. The world was here and we evolved and they, they reject creation. Is God obligated to give them any more light? But if a person responds positively to the grace that they've been given, either that inner, that God, that everyone knows that God exists, something God puts inside of everybody, or creation, and they, they respond positively to that, that God gives them more light and God gives them more light. Now, the person responding positively is not meritorious. This is really important because that's the argument within Calvinism of God choosing a person and rejecting someone else. That, that they say, well, then you're saying, I responded to the light as if you're bragging. But really, all you're doing is receiving the grace that God's given. So, receiving isn't meritorious. Receiving is just receiving. I can't brag because I received anything. I brag because God showed me through creation. I mean, I brag because um, what Christ did for me on the cross. Paul said, I don't boast anything, but I boast in Christ. If anything, it would be the person who believes that God chooses one and rejects another because they, they now say, used to be Calvinism would say, um, God had no reason for choosing. He just arbitrarily chose one person to another. Now they say, we don't know why God chooses. They appeal to mystery. And so then you may believe there's something in you that you were chosen. The person next to you wasn't chosen. 
So now you feel a sense of superiority because you were chosen and they weren't. But here's the thing. How do you know you're chosen? If you are a Calvinist, how do you know you're chosen? You say, well, I believe. Well, yeah, but you have to endure to the end to be saved. So you could walk away. And that would be evidence that you were never part of them because you went out from them. So how do you know you're saved? I can tell you how I know I'm saved because the Bible says if you believe in Christ, then you will be saved. And then I see the fruit in my life of God's work within my life. And I want to keep his commandments. And I keep his commandments. I don't always keep them, but I keep his commandments. And the Bible says by this we know that we know him. And you say, well, then I know him because I keep his commandments. But that's not what you believe. You believe that you are chosen before the foundations of the world by the irresistible grace of God and that you can't be lost. But you don't know for sure until you get to the end whether you really are one of the chosen ones because those who endure to the end will be saved. So, um, I believe that everyone is given a certain amount of light and can respond positively to that light and that God will reach out to that person more. I believe that. And so, um, Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you, right? And he said that to his disciples, whom he chose to be his disciples. But if you want to make that a broader sense, you could say the choosing of God doesn't mean you have to respond to him. Now, some are going to balk at that, but there's an example in the disciples. Didn't I choose all of you, but one of you is a devil? So Judas was chosen by him, but Judas didn't follow him. So the choosing of God doesn't mean everyone will believe that's chosen. And I think that God chooses based upon the receiving of the grace that we have received. All right, psych man. So thank you for your question. I appreciate that. Good question. Um, Susan has a question. And Susan says, question, please explain the gift of the word of knowledge. Is it how it's different from psychics? Yeah, I mean, how it's different from psychic is the psychics are fake and the word of knowledge is true. Um, psychics claim to have maybe some demonic powers behind them, um, but I don't think they do. They use parlor tricks to be able to do those things. The sad thing is, is that sometimes um, Pentecostals will, will use parlor tricks to do the same thing. Like in Bethel, they'll tell people to start prophesying just start prophesying and then just see what comes true rather than really being moved by the gift of the Spirit. So the gift of knowledge, um, let me think about where it worked in Scripture. So the gift of knowledge worked in Acts chapter 8 when Simon the sorcerer asked Peter if he could buy the Holy Spirit for money. And Peter went off on a list. You are wrapped up in bitterness and sin, and he said, repent, let's, you know, and, and, he, and he starts telling him about himself. And that was, that was a gift of knowledge. And I think we see it in some other places in the book of Acts, and we can point that out over a period of time. Um, it's very easy to know whether or not it's the gift of knowledge. So, if someone says, um, I got, God told me this about you. How easy is that to test? God tells something about me, and then the guy tells me something that I didn't, that he didn't know. It was a gift of knowledge. Then, okay. And 
it, it may work um, it may work in different ways. Like it may work when someone's teaching the Apostles' Doctrine. And something is said, and this has happened several times over the years, that someone will come up and say, you used an analogy that you talked about somebody coming from Boston, and I'm from Boston, and I think God's speaking to me. And you wonder, was that the gift of knowledge? Was God through that? Did he just bring me to that analogy to where I knew something? And, and use that analogy that way. Um, I don't know that the gift of knowledge you always, that you always know. Um, you can, I, I think, um, I had a guy faking like he was possessed one time and pulled out a, um, a razor blade to cut, like he was gonna cut himself. And me and the youth pastor, Andy Dominguez, were, were praying for him. And as soon as I saw the blade come out, just something inside of me said, this is all fake. And I, is that a word of knowledge that God gave me? To where I said, we're done here. He got up, put the razor blade away, grabbed his stuff and left. Later on, I found out that he had done the same thing in several different churches and was bilking them for money and a place to stay. And he would pretend like they cast the demon out. Then he would go to another church and do the same thing to another church. So was God just showing me or was that the gift of knowledge? The gift of knowledge there could be, if that was a gift of knowledge, it was evidenced in the fact that it was fake. And if I'm wrong about that, and this guy's really suicidal, how horrible is that? But that I would be willing to go, we're done here, and then for him to get up and leave, and then to find out that he was ripping people off. So um, I'm not sure if that answers your question completely, but it is radically different than psychics. Psychics are claiming that they have their own power to be able to talk to the dead. The gift of knowledge is God's spirit revealing to you something that you don't know. And now it, you're able to t tell it in a situation that is going to help the situation. Radically different. All right, Susan, a follow-up on that too. Um, on this coming up Saturday, if that didn't answer your question completely well. All right. Um, good to see us, uh, Ski Bro the Hebrew. Good to have you here. And you too, Violet Stag. Thank you for your question earlier. So, um, Ski Bro the Hebrew says, question, what gift should all believers cover? Number one. Um, what gifts should all believers cover? So I'm going to just say that you're saying the gifts of the Spirit. And what is the best gift? Because it says there in the passage that I read, desire the best gift. The best gift is the, the best gift for you. Now Paul goes on in chapter 14 and talks about how tongues edifies yourself and that he would rather prophesy than speak in tongues. He would rather give five words in prophecy than 10,000 in tongues because you're edifying the body when the body gathers together. So what's the best gift? It depends on what you're doing. If I'm a teacher, which I am, the best gift is the gift of teaching or the gift of evangelism. If I'm, if I'm on staff and I'm organizing different things on a church, the gift of organizations. The gift of helps if I'm running uh, a ministry for the homeless and I'm looking to help them the best way that I can. All the gifts are manifestations of the Spirit. 
not just the gift of tongues or the gift of discernment or healing, the gifts of healings um, or knowledge. Those are just the sign gifts. But all the gifts are evidence that you have had the Holy Spirit inside of you. They're the manifestation of the Spirit inside of you. Um, the, the, the best analogy I've used, and this will be our last um, question for the day, the best analogy that I've seen, he, uh, a Skibro the Hebrew, is that if I ask to borrow shoes from you and you bring out your best shoes and I go, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going skiing. Can I borrow your best ski boots? That's what I was really looking for. And you brought me out cowboy boots when I asked if I could borrow boots. The best thing for skiing would be the ski boots. The best thing for tennis would be tennis shoes. The best thing for dancing would be two-step and cowboy boots. The best, you know, whatever the, the best shoes would be. So the best gift depends on what you're going to be doing and receiving the best gift. But tongues itself, which is often confused with being the best gift, is a blessing and a good thing because you're edified when you use it, but it is not the best gift when you're teaching people or you're in a church service. There are other gifts that are operating, all right? So, um, Rod, um, appreciate you. We will, um, I'll look at your Satan falling from the first and second heaven or third. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll look at that in the future. Either re-ask it or I'll use it for a first one. I see there are several questions that are here that I'm missing just because we're running out of time. I really appreciate your questions. I'm going to go back and take a look at these. Um, and I, I'll i go back and um, I'll go back and, and start adding these into a file in just in my notes so that I can kind of throw these in periodically, especially if there's a really good one in there because um, so many people are asking questions. Um, it seems like you got to kind of get here a little bit earlier um, anymore. But I appreciate you guys. Love you. Stay close to Jesus. Uh, we've got a service in about an hour. Uh, we are we've got a, a great time of worship. And then I'm teaching out of the book of Revelation. We are looking at the millennium period. We've had so many questions on this Q&A. Um, this is our 174th Q&A, I think. We've had so many questions in the 174 Q&As that we've had about the millennium. I'll be answering questions tonight about the millennium. That's the title of the message. We'll be talking about what the millennium period is, um, the different views on the millennium, um, why there would even, why, why would God even use have a millennium, and then the characteristics of the millennium. So we'll be covering all of those things tonight. Um, it's Revelation chapter 20, verses uh, 4 through 6 that we're covering, which talk about um, the millennium period, all right? But it's good to see you guys. Thank you guys so much for all of your questions. Uh, they really are good. I appreciate it. Uh, stay close to Jesus. And remember, if you're, if you're struggling with a behavioral issue, because it's not just addictions that cause problems, there's behavioral issues too. And behavioral issues are hard to change. And when you're dealing with something like an addiction or a behavioral issue, then get close to God. Go to church, pray, read, get in fellowship with someone who loves the Lord. Do the things you know you need to do. Don't slack on any of those. And there will be strength to be able to overcome that stronghold in your life. All right. God bless you guys. I'm out. I will see you uh, later on. We'll, we'll have another Q&A on Saturday. Uh, God bless you.